you know, it's clear that hormone issues have been brewing for a long time when you start to have period problems, because by the time your menstrual cycle starts raising hell, you better believe that your adrenals and your thyroid, you know, and your pancreas as well have been struggling for a while. And, you know, I call your cycle the canary in the coal mine because we're not even thinking there's a problem until our cycles or fertility are impacted. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie. Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It is me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I am very excited to bring you a conversation with Nicole Jardim, and we are talking all about menstruation today. Now, Nicole is a certified women's health coach. She's a writer, a speaker, a mentor, and she is the creator and author of the book, Fix Your Period, a title which I might add, I'm very fond of. I really like the verb your noun format of this, Fix Your Period. And it is, um, her work is, you will very soon see, very similar to mine. I had an instant falling in love with her. Um, And the whole sort of backstory with having Nicole on the show is I actually reached out to her. I was like, she has a pink book. I has a pink book, maybe. And we're both talking about menstruation. Let's see what kind of um, synchronicities uh, there are and of which there were many. Now, Nicole has been called on as a woman's health expert for sites like The Guardian, Well and Good, Mind Body Green, Healthline. She is the host of a podcast herself called The Period Party. And of course, the author, as I mentioned, of Fix Your Period, Verb Your Noun. I just love it. Um, A six weeks guide to banish bloating, conquer cramps, manage moodiness and ignite lasting hormonal balance. Now in this conversation, Nicole and I talk about normal menstruation, what is normal and what may be common and often conflated as normal. We talk about cervical fluid. So we talk about how fluid changes through our cycle, what these changes mean. We talk about something that she talks in her book, she calls it the hormonal hierarchy, which I just loved. So we talk about DHEA and pregnenolone, some of the oft forgotten hormones in our uh, menstrual, um, in our reproductive health and our menstrual cycle. And we go through insulin and cortisol and we talk about thyroid health. We talk about what are some common signs and symptoms of stress that we might begin to identify in our lives. And we get into even conversations around boundaries. I think that for women, it's so 
often that we are not taught to set boundaries for ourselves. So we talk about setting boundaries, what that might look like in everyday life, how I am too learning alongside you, Betty, I am learning how to set boundaries as well. And we talk about alcohol, we talk about the whole shebang. And I really enjoyed my conversation with her. Um, you know, of course, going beyond that, we have the same color <laughs> of book. Uh, mine being, of course, the Betty Body. Hers being Fix Your Period. Uh, just so much alignment in our philosophy, our approach to women's health and healing. And I just treasure this woman, uh, even though I haven't known her for a very long time, but have very, I'm very happy to know her. So please, without further ado and without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Nicole Jardim. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Well, Nicole Jardim, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm really excited to have you on the Better Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. I'm so pumped. I feel like we've got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> yes. And there's so, we were saying this in the pre-chat, so much alignment uh, in our messages. I was reading, uh, I was reading your book, Fix Your Period, and even, you know, your style of writing is very similar. And it really, you do such a wonderful job in taking a lot of the complex science and breaking it down into really manageable chunks that are really easy to understand where you don't need to have letters behind your name in order to kind of get what's going on here. So it's, it's a really wonderfully done book. So congratulations on that. Thank you. When doctors say things like this to me, I'm just like, Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I mean, and it's pink, right? Yes. I mean, that that has to count for something too. I have a book. My cover was pink. So <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh, she loves the pink. She's into it. All right. So uh, yeah, it's very, uh, very, very well done. And it, we're going to talk all about menstrual cycles today. But before we do, for my listeners, my Bettys, as you know that they're called, um, as my bed, before we kind of get into Fix Your Period, uh, I, I'm really curious about your story and how you came into this work. Um, I've been very candid with my own story, just struggling with my period for really decades. Um, And that sort of awakening around the power of my menstrual cycle was what drove me to write my book and kind of do the work that I do. But really interested in your story in terms of what brought you here and what was not your aha moment, because I find maybe there was an aha moment. I find it's more of a gradual like uptick of the dimmer, you know, it's never like a light switch. It's always like the dimmer is, op- you know, getting brighter and brighter. So tell, tell us a little bit about you, your background and how you came to do this work. Yes, definitely an uptick. <laughs> That's so <laughs> funny. I agree with that. 
You know, I was the poster child for period problems as a teenager. I feel like I had everything that could go wrong or at the time it felt that way. I I started to notice issues when I was about 14 or so. They, my period started getting really heavy and really painful. I was that girl who would go to sleepovers and my friend's mom would have to spread a towel on my bed, really mortifying on so many levels. And, you know, and then I, I would miss school sometimes because I was in so much pain. So it was just sort of this gradual thing that just got worse and worse. And my mom had had really terrible periods. So she just kind of assumed that this was all a natural, normal part of getting through the teenage years. And she was like, oh, you know, when I had kids, things got a lot better. And I was like, but mom, (laughs) that's a long way away. And I feel like that was the case for so many of us. We were kind of just told, this is what you get and you got to deal with it. And maybe just maybe when you have a baby, things will improve. And I just remember thinking, okay, well, I'm guessing resigned myself to this and this is what it is. And, and then what I started to experience was really irregular cycles. So suddenly these heavy periods and painful periods would come every three or four months. And I started to noticed that, um, you know, my moods were really changing as well. It could have been me being a teenager, uh, but generally that was, that was shifting a lot too. So I just found myself being more and more depressed every month and, and especially not getting my period. And finally my mom said, okay, let's go to the gynecologist. So I went and she immediately prescribed the pill. And that was, you know, sort of the beginning of a five-year odyssey on the birth control pill, which at the time seemed like I had found my period panacea. I was like, sweet. I don't have to do anything anymore. I've got a light period now. It comes on time. I don't have any period pain anymore. My mood is stabilized. Everything feels great. And it was in within about a year or two, I started to notice what felt like seemingly unrelated symptoms. And no one could really tell me what they were or what was causing them. I was, you know, I was getting melasma all over my face, first of all, which again, really mortifying because dermatologists would say things like, well, I've only seen that in pregnant women. So I have no idea what's wrong with you. And then, you know, I was having these uh, chronic UTIs, yeast infections, not fun at all. And Fast forward even a few years later, and I ended up in the ER because I had an allergic reaction to a UTI medication. And that was my that was my major aha moment. But the the ticker had definitely been (laughs) going up. And I was at that point where I knew I had to do something different. And a friend of mine suggested her acupuncturist. And I thought, all right, well, I've seen like 20 doctors, so I may as well try something else. And that's what I did. And it really rocked my world. I mean, it, it set me on this path because this doctor or this acupuncturist was the first person to say to me that the birth control pill and the lack of ovulation, which I didn't even know what that was at the time, uh, was what was causing a lot of the issues that I was experiencing. And so, like I said, fast forward, you know, what, 15 years and here I am doing this work that I do. I think one of the, when I listen to your story, one of the things that comes up for me and I see this a lot with the women that I counsel is this sort of hands up in the air. Like, we don't know what's wrong with you. Like there's, there's, I only see this in pregnant patients. Like you're so weird. You know, there's this kind of undercurrent of, um, there's something wrong with you. There's some abnormality with you. There's, and then of course the patient, I mean, you're a very, uh, you know, intelligent woman and you were able to navigate your way through and come out on the other end as, as a coach, essentially teaching other women this, but so many other women are going to come away from experiences like that with a lot of 
shame, yeah, you know, thinking that something's wrong with them. And then of course, you know, it's always the, it's like the gateway, like, you know, the birth control pill. And we'll talk a little bit about this if we, if we get there, but it's almost like a gateway drug, right? It's like you start for, you know, a woman, a young woman in her, in her teenage years where we actually expect our menstrual cycles to be a little bit irregular anyway. It's just like any new skill, you start riding a bike, you fall off a couple times, scratch your knee. It's the same with menstruating. Like we not, we kind of, it takes a little while to get that machine, like that, that smooth, well-oiled machine running. Mm-hmm. But so often teens get this script for the pill and then other things, like you were saying, you have skin conditions. So they prescribe you some kind of skin condition. And then there's like mood changes and like, well, here's the antidepressant. And then there's cholesterol and lipid change. Well, here's the statin. And then we, and then, and then on and on and on. And it sort of snowballs all the while the woman's like, God, it just must be, I just must be built. This way. It's just something wrong with me. Right. I know. I think that we have this tendency to do that, to, to be constantly looking outside of ourselves, first of all, for a solution. And secondly, to be thinking that there is something inherently wrong with us. And I think that this is the narrative in conventional medicine, generally speaking, that there's definitely something wrong with you. And as a teenager, you said it, you know, we're so impressionable. We have no idea what the hell's going on with our bodies because no one's really ever taught us. And, and there's no precedent placed on. And mom doesn't know either, right? Mom's taking the, mom's taking her teenage, like, okay, honey, let's try and get the self together. We'll go to the doctor together, you know, and then we don't ever see, um, you know, there's never informed consent. There's never any, here's all the risks that can happen with Mm -hmm. the pill short-term and long-term. Those are very rarely, if ever discussed long-term effects of the pill. Cause for, for the most part, we actually don't have that data other than the case reports of women saying, Hey, I've been on the pill for like three decades and, you know, and, and and then, you know, they have trouble, you know, falling pregnant after, you know, after coming off the pill and all of that. So true. I know. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I had no idea at all. I threw that slip from the pill right out. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, get out of the way. At that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just give me that pill. Damn it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I never even looked at that stuff. And, and I would say that I'd probably say over the years I've informally polled people and it's probably about 95% of women never looked at any side effects and never really right. were told about the long, the short or long-term side effects, which again, we don't have a ton of data, but we have enough to know and we also have women's lived experiences. Absolutely. And to be discounted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I think, um, you know, I, um, I have a similar story to you in that my period was just always, it always just felt like it was punishment. It was like, well, here it is again. I'm a woman. Here's my monthly, cur- you know, here's the curse, you know, here's my punishment for being a woman. Um, never really understanding what all these symptoms meant. You know, I wrote, you know, in my book, I wrote about like my breasts felt like they were angry at me every month. Like putting on a t-shirt, you know, was really, really uncomfortable. Just the pressure uh, because my breasts felt so tender and just moodiness and irritability and sleep issues. And, and just like the always needing to have two pairs of pants with me, no matter what. Mm. Um, so let's, um, let's actually dive into, um, and we're going to set the stage here because you're, as I mentioned, your book is so beautifully written. And as we, as we dive into some of the particulars of it, I want to set the stage for my Bettys who are listening around what normal menstruation is so that we can contrast it with some of the things that we discuss in your book, as well as some of the protocols that you talk about. So 
give us an overview of the four phases of the menstrual cycle and and generally what sort what is happening from a hormonal perspective now i know this is a textbook onto itself um but you know a general overview of what are some of the four different phases what are some of the hormonal um considerations that we see in each of these different phases yeah, for sure. I, you know, this is, I love talking about this because I feel as though we don't get this information, generally speaking, as you well know. And so it's always really exciting to just hear all the amazing stuff that's happening in your body on a, on a monthly basis. It's pretty cool, actually. It it's is, really right? Cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we've got these hormonal superpowers going on. And unfortunately, we've sort of been led to believe that they're kind of just a pain, uh, but they're not. They're really incredible. Um, and so when you're thinking about, these phases of the cycle, we're talking about menstruation. We, that is also the follicular phase. I call that the bleeding part of the follicular phase. And then we have the non-bleeding part of the follicular phase, and then we move to ovulation and then the luteal phase. And I, uh, you know, all of these different phases have uh, horm different hormonal attributes. And of course they also bring with them physical and emotional changes that we, again, if we're expecting them and we're aware of them, it can be, they can really work to our advantage. But a lot of the time we just feel like we're turning into crazy people and there's something wrong with us. And that isn't actually the case. Uh, you know, Hayden, my partner and I, we joke that, you know, I've, I basically have a different personality every week of the month. <laughs> it's like a good thing in most cases, but it is something to pay attention to when you're thinking about where you're at in your cycle and, and what to be expecting. And What's amazing is that we've got these, this ebb and flow of all of these different hormones. We've got FSH and LH coming from the brain. We also have progesterone, we have estrogen, we have testosterone, and even other hormones as well, anti-malarian hormone and others, they fluctuate throughout the cycle. And we also have, um, you know, things like neurotransmitters like serotonin and epinephrine and dopamine. Those also change as well, which is part of why our moods change. And so what is amazing about all of this is that in that first half or that first phase of your cycle, that menstruation phase, what we, what, what is happening is we're essentially shedding our uterine lining, obviously, but our hormones are at that point where they're just at their lowest in the cycle for the most part. Uh, and our bodies are just calling out for rest. That's all they're really trying to do. They just want us to take a break and, uh, you know, and just put our feet up. And, and I think that that's really important for all of us to remember because, you know, I talked about this in the book about the proverbial floodgates open and we, we have this period. We also kind of sigh a deep sigh of relief in a way, because whatever that those feelings of anxiety or anticipation of this period starting have pretty much dissipated now. And finally we can just take a load off. And so that's traditionally what we've all done in the past. And so I think that it's something to think about, even if it's just a short time in your day or it's a day off, whatever that looks like for you really acknowledge that your body is working hard right now. You're actually shedding uterine walls. I mean, this is also an inflammatory time because progesterone has dropped so much. That's an anti-inflammatory hormone. And so it's one of those things where you're, you're sort of in an inflamed state. And so you really do feel that you feel it in maybe body aches and pain, uh, or your mood is just, like I said, more introverted and you're more just feeling withdrawn and emotionally vulnerable. So it's just really important, I think, for everyone to think through like what, what 
it would serve them during that time of their cycle. And then moving from your period to into the non-bleeding part of the follicular phase and into ovulation, estrogen's rising, testosterone is going to rise as you approach ovulation. Uh, you know, you're going to find that your energy is shifting significantly. But what's amazing is that you have these hormones coming from your brain, speaking to your ovaries, FSH is talking to your ovaries. It's getting those follicles ready. And then it's, there's going to be a situation where one of the follicles sort of gets ahead. It's kind of like the races in the Olympics. (laughs) So one person busts in front and they're not going to be caught. And, And so that follicle is the one that then becomes a dominant follicle and it's going to be what you ovulate from. And, and then LH takes over. And then so that's going to spike and it's going to trigger this huge estrogen surge. And then you're going to have this follicle being released from the or sorry, the egg released from the follicle. And that's ovulation. And this is the time where it's sort of like the hormonal fireworks and everything's going on right now. And I feel like it's this time where your body has just been working towards this really hard, I might add, uh, over the last few weeks. In fact, before you even got your period, because FSH starts to rise and get follicles going before you get your period. So it's a concern effort. And what I think is so cool about our bodies and what we, you know, I think we, we is gets lost in this messaging around women's bodies being problematic. And we need a lot of medical intervention and things like that is that every single month or every time you have a cycle or ovulate, your body releases this egg or your ovary releases this egg into the fallopian tube. And then that follicle turns into a full on endocrine gland. And I mean, are you kidding me? This is so cool. And it's producing progesterone. It's like a fully vascularized gland and it's five to seven or three to three to five centimeters long. And that's kind of huge. And so if you looked at, if you Googled the corpus luteum, what it looks like, cause that's basically what it turns into. It's um, it takes up almost a whole ovary. It's incredible. And so that would even support a pregnancy that progesterone would support a pregnancy in the beginning if you were to get pregnant. So I just feel like our bodies are so incredible and that it takes a lot of work and effort for our ovaries to do what they do on a you know cyclical basis. So I feel like, you know, the next time you're feeling like your body's just not doing what it needs to do, just thank it because it's working really hard for you. And, you know, from there we move into the luteal phase and that's where progesterone takes over from that estradiol that's been rising steadily and then surges. And so that drops off a bit and then comes back later in the luteal phase. But basically progesterone is that keep calm and carry on hormone, as I call it. (laughs) And it's supposed to be higher in the second half of your cycle to kind of do what estrogen did in the first half, which is, you know, to keep your mood elevated and stable. Uh, But it, it does a little bit of a different thing. It's kind of like the wrap you up in a, in a, comfy shawl, mama hormone and, (laughs) you know, right. And so it's, it's great because it's going to, it's going to keep you calm. Like I said, it's anti-anxiety and, you know, it's supportive of your uterine lining. I mean, this is what it's all about. It's like procreation and it's going to sort of like decorate the walls of the uterine lining, whereas estrogen just built it all up. And so then from there, you know, your interior designer of your your endometrium. Yes. I love it. I love that too. (laughs) I know. So it it is really incredible what's happening 
completely unbeknownst to us if we are just not tuned into our cycle or not tracking or anything like that. And I, you know, I think that it's so important for us to be paying attention to our cycles and tracking and we can get into that, but ultimately, yeah. And then you, the progesterone drops off. Estrogen does a little bump up. It also drops off. And then that's a signal to your lining that it's time to go. And, you know, within 24 to 48 hours of your progesterone dropping, then your uterine lining starts to shed and we start this whole wonderful process all over again. And we start again. I mean, I think if you can't, if you can't appreciate how magical your body is just from that explanation, I don't think anything else in this conversation will move the needle for you because I, I think that the, and we do that every month for 40 years you know, 35 to 45 years. I mean, it is absolutely incredible um, that we're able to, to go through this cycle. And, you know, as we're going to talk about attuning to this rhythm, to this cadence, where we are aware of some of the ebbs and flows of our emotional states, of our physicality, of our energy, of our sleep, I think it can help you structure your life in a way that is, uh, is very, you know, female oriented in a very male dominated, more patriarchal, uh, world. And I don't say that, you know, with, uh, you know, with any, you know, malintent, but it is just, it is what it is. We live in a very patriarchal world where there's this, and I say patriarchal, when I say masculine energy, I'm not talking about, you know, chromosomal sex. I'm talking about like energy, right? So like that masculine, like do, 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 achieve, 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 produce, produce, produce versus this more female or feminine energy, if you will, which is a bit of, you know, you mentioned it in that bleed week where we slow down a little bit. We have a little bit more intro, you know, interoception and a little bit more introspective maybe a little bit more, um, not as extroverted or more introverted as you mentioned. Um, and I think that this is just one of the beautiful things about being a woman that everybody, this is why I, I was, I reached out to you to have you on the show because I think everybody needs to hear this. Um, because we've been, at least my, you know, my experience growing up has been keep it under wraps. No one's got to know, you know, like the yeah. worst thing that it could ever happen would be for you to have, you know, get your period and not be prepared. Like if you bled through your pants and like, you know, in high school or something, that's like the, you know, mm. the worst thing that could ever happen. And it's like, well, is it really, is that really the worst thing? You know, it's not right. I mean, yeah. how dramatic was that? I was like, just, I'm ready to leave the planet. Take me right. Now. Right. Yeah. It's like, I'm switching schools. I'm going to go to France. I'm going to learn French. No one will ever know. No one will ever know that this ever happened. <laughs> like, how did I, I think back to that time and I just thought, oh, I can't live this down. And I was in an all girls school too. So yeah. yeah, I mean, you know how it is being a teenager. Everything is so dramatic. Good Lord. It's over the top. Let, let's mm -hmm. talk a little bit about blood flow. Uh, let's yes. actually come back to that uh, week one, that bleed week uh, in the period. And I, I love that you talk a lot about this on, on, uh, on your Instagram. And I thought it was so well done because you know, we all have an N of one. We all know what our bleed looks like, but we actually have no realm of comparison. We don't know what, you know, scanty might look like or light or heavy or normal. So can you maybe talk through or give some visuals in terms of what constitutes normal blood flow in a bleed week when you yes. have a period? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I have a reel on that. It's pretty hilarious. I feel so ridiculous doing these things, but it's so helpful. I feel, I feel like people can have a visual. So when it comes to your period, you know, I really like to see a period somewhere between three and seven days. But again, I, I think that that is just one parameter for people who have periods to kind of, you know, gauge whether it's normal for them or not. But 
ultimately that three to seven days or four to five days is really the statistical average is what I like to see and, and what I usually see. And, uh, you know, oftentimes what this will signify at a minimum of three days, it signifies to me that you likely ovulated, you had an, a sufficient amount of estrogen building up to trigger ovulation and build your uterine lining so that you had a, at least a three-day period. And so um, when it comes to blood loss, it's so challenging to measure it if you're not using something like a menstrual cup. So I think that you know there are other ways to be able to pay attention to blood loss, but ultimately, um, you know, an average period range of blood loss ranges about 35 to 50 milliliters. And when, you know, even on those on Instagram and things like that, people say to me, what, what? <laughs> that seems so little. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just want to remind everyone that that's just fluid. And the research is really hard to get because of course, measuring blood loss is not exactly the easiest thing to do. And so there's no IRB for that. Like there's no, no there's no, yeah, there's no randomized control trial that's going to look at blood loss in a woman. Yeah. Uh, not even close. I know yeah. I re writing this book, I was scouring the research just to see what I could find. And that this was what I came up with. And ultimately, I, you know, I think what we have to pay attention to more than anything is our period protection and how much we're losing there. And so if you are, you know, basically a pat, like a regular pad or a tampon holds about five milliliters of, of menstrual blood probably a little bit more, but a lot of us tend to change faster and things like that. We don't want to, things to be overflowing. So, uh, you know, use that as a gauge. And so the idea here is, you know, with 35 to 50 milliliters, you're looking at like, you know, eight to 16 pads or tampons, um, a period. And again, we change a lot more frequently than when it's fully soaked. So keep that in mind too. It might be a little bit more, might be a little bit less, but pay attention to your symptoms. Are you bleeding more than seven days uh, at a time. If you are, that could indicate that you have heavy periods. Are you doubling up on period protection at night when you go to bed? So are you using a cup and a pad or a tampon and a pad or something like that? Are you laying towels down on your bed like I used to? Are you, uh, do you, are, do you feel wiped out by your period? That I think is another one that we, I think we've all just sort of come to think that this is normal. We're just spent by the time our period arrives. And that's, that shouldn't be how it is. So I would say that that's another one to pay attention to as well as whether you've been diagnosed with iron deficiency or iron deficient anemia, that's all potentially a, a sign that you have period, you have heavy periods or heavy flow. And I think the other things too are things like clots. So large clots that are the size of a quarter or one inch wide or wider that, you know, are just very present in your period blood. Cause if you have a clot here or there, I don't think that's a big deal, but if it's actually affecting the flow of your blood, so it's looking more chunky than it is flowy, then that's usually a sign too, that something might be going on there. So those I think are some of the things to pay attention to when you're thinking about blood loss on the flip side of that. I, you know, this is something that I struggled with for a long time after coming off the pill was having a period that was too light. So anything less than 25 milliliters. And so that's really just like five pads or tampons for your entire period over the whole period. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know some women have said to me, Oh, wait, is that a day? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> no, it's a whole period. So if you're losing very little, uh, blood that way, then, you know, that could indicate to me again, 
there's maybe you're not ovulating. Uh, there are low levels of your sex hormones, estrogen, particularly obviously progesterone would be low if you don't ovulate. And one, some of the ways to look for that is to pay attention to, first of all, how many times you're changing your period protection to notice uh, what color your period blood is. Is it red? Because it really should be red. And if it's pinky or, you know, scanty, like you were saying, it looks more like cervical fluid that's just tinged. That to me is a sign that something's up there. And like I said, it's likely that you're not ovulating or that something's impacting your hormonal function in a way that is causing you to have these super light periods. Wonderfully said. And again, as you were, as you were saying that I was thinking about, you know, one of the things that we need to build up that endometrial endometrial lining is these anabolic hormones, right? We need estrogen. It is a growth. It is a trophic hormone. We need, so if you have this light pink, scanty flow, maybe there's also, as you mentioned, you know, there's some, maybe the progesterone's too low. Maybe your estrogen wasn't high enough in the follicular phase. And then again, the secondary rise that we see in the, in the luteal phase as well. So lots of, lots of different avenues that we can explore in terms of why that may be happening. And yeah. As you were saying as well, very common after women come off the pill, usually women will come out, they're like, okay, I want to get pregnant, right? It's like they've, <laughs> yes. been, you know, they've married for a couple of years and they're like, okay, I'm ready. And then they have these really light, uh, or if at, if anything, uh, you know, if, if they bleed at all, these, these cycles, well, I'm using air quotes for those of you that are listening to me on audio, I'm using the word cycle very loosely. Um, so it is also, you also have to give yourself some time to re-establish that, you know, brain ovarian connection because it's, you know, with the, with the pill, and we've talked a lot about this in the podcast and we'll continue to talk about it because no one else is, um, there, it is, it is a form of castration. It is a form of chemical castration. You are cutting the brain off from talking to your ovaries. So you do that for decades and you got to give yourself a little bit of, and if you do that, you know, uh, we love you. There's no judgment, you know, you make the choice that's right for you. But I also, on the other end, when you get off of the pill, I also would love it, maybe if if, if you feel if you feel called to it, uh, to give yourself some grace, right, to allow your body to catch up to um, to this hormonal environment that it has essentially grown up on, um, to kind of come back to its default, which has been sort of under the radar for however many years or decades. So, so true. I, I couldn't agree more. I I remember, well, I feel like it's still talked about this way, but they, they'll say, oh, well, you know, the pill is just mimicking pregnancy, but it definitely is not doing that at all. It's basically putting you into sort of a premature menopause in a way. I mean, when I came off the pill, that was why I had all of these chronic issues. I, you don't ovulate for years on end and you basically don't make any of these sex hormones. And that's the, that's the misconception, right? Is that these sex hormones are just about fertility or pregnancy or right. getting your period. And right. in fact, they're not at all about just that they're, they have massive roles in the body. And, and that was what was happening to me. I, my brain function had completely gone. I had terrible joint pain. My bones basically hurt. I was 21, couldn't walk down the stairs properly. And, you know, like my skin was, was a mess and melasma is so interesting because progesterone actually reduces brown pigmentation, whereas estrogen drives it. So of course I was in this very low estrogen state, but estrogen dominant because I had no progesterone. And I see this over and over and over again, these kinds of, like I said, seemingly unrelated symptoms. And 
And so many women are like, I don't know what to do. And it just feels like everything is wrong. And it feels that way, but it's not really that. It's actually just that you're not ovulating. And, and that's really, and having healthy ovulations because we can ovulate and it can be a, not a great ovulation. So it's so important for us to get back to healthy, optimal ovulation. And that will solve you know, it's like that 99 problems. Many, yeah, yeah. 99, <laughs> that's so true. problems, but ovulation isn't one. Yeah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> exactly. And it solved all of them. Yeah, uh, it so, solved yeah. all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, so I, and you know, that's actually the main point. So this is the thing that I, the other thing that I think a lot of people miss, and I'd love your input on this is, you know, I always call our periods like the popular girl, like she gets all the attention, right? It's like, oh, it's my qual. How long is it? The color, the flow, the clots, the this, but we never actually pay attention to ovulation, which is the actual point of the cycle is to have this follicle release the egg, you know, in anticipation of it being fertilized, irrespective of whether you want that or not. That's the point of this cycle. Um, so let's, let's actually speak, let's actually talk a little bit about, um, and related to ovulation, how our cervical fluid changes and how we can actually tell whether we may or may not be ovulating. Cause this is, in my opinion, one of the unsung heroines of when we're talking about optimizing for fertility, understanding your rhythm, it's also looking in your underwear. And I think we've been taught again with this shame and blame cycle that, oh, it's just this gross, like, it's like super wet or whatever it is. So uh, mm -hmm. how does the fluid, how does our cervical fluid change over our cycle? And, and, and can be, you know, you can kind of go over it generally. And then what, what I would love to really um, dial into is how can we tell with our cervical fluid if ovulation might uh, be happening or has happened? Yes. Okay. The cervical fluid thing kills me. I was that girl when I was 14, 15, who thought I had a yeast infection every month. Didn't even know what a yeast infection really was or what it even looked like necessarily, but was so sure that was what was going on. So when I say I was clueless, I was clueless. And I remember uh, someone finally enlightening me. I was probably in my twenties at that point, but I'd figured it out generally that that was what was going on. But yeah, so this is what I think I agree completely. This is an unsung hero. I talk about ovulation as being the star of the menstrual show because yes, you're right. Like the period gets so much attention, but your period is just sort of an afterthought when it comes to the entire, the goings on of the cycle, generally speaking. It's the speaking. report card. It's like, this right? is how you did. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I know. <laughs> And usually it's not so great. <laughs> so yeah, but I completely agree with that. It really is the driver of everything. It drives all of this hormone production. And so what I think is so interesting about cervical fluid is that, first of all, most of us have, like you said, we've never really been taught what that is or what it's supposed to, what the purpose of it is. We just know that we have all this thick and gunky stuff <laughs> at some point in our underwear, at some point in our cycle. And I remember when I first started doing this work, I worked with this one woman and I was explaining this whole cervical fluid thing. And she looked at me and she said, wait, you want me to do what? <laughs> when I was telling her about how you track this stuff. Yeah. And so I think that it can be really confusing. And so I, I have everyone, first of all, start by just wearing dark underwear as you move towards the middle of your cycle. That helps you see 
what's what's in there. White underwear is a little bit harder. So wear darker underwear. Uh, you can set a little alarm on your phone. Um, I use an app called Kindara and they actually have a cervical fluid check to, uh, alarm. So you can set that, which I think is so great. And then you can, you know, at least one time a day, you'll, you'll check it. But every time you go to the toilet, you should be looking in your underwear to see what's there. And usually after your period, it's dry. I mean, it's dry. And when I say dry, I don't mean dry, like a piece of cardboard. I mean, like your vaginal tissue will feel, still feel damp, but there's when you wipe, for instance, with toilet paper, you're going to feel a dry sensation. So you're not going to feel like this slippery, wet sensation. And then as estrogen starts to build and it stimulates your cervical crypts, what then happens is those little cervical crypts will start to produce more fluid. And it takes on this wetter lotiony type consistency when you first, when you're first out of your period, like the first three to five days after, and then it starts to get creamy and even more wet. And then as you approach ovulation, you're really starting to get to the point where you're going to see this, uh, it's it's it can be like creamy lotiony still but it will take on a slicker sensation and so it becomes more like egg white or watery and stretchy between your fingers and you know this stuff is amazing and so basically you will start to see that gradually as you approach ovulation and then what's interesting is that our the the corpus luteum it before it turns into a corpus luteum those cells are luteinized and they actually start to produce progesterone so you might notice drying up of the cervical fluid even before you ovulate progesterone dries up your cervical fluid so if you notice that don't freak out it means that you're probably about to ovulate and uh, and then after ovulation pretty much the cervical fluid turns into this sticky tacky type consistency and then it'll come back a little bit after estrogen rises again in that second half of your cycle, you're going to see sort of this wetter consistency. It doesn't mean you're fertile again. I swear it doesn't. And, but it will signify that estrogen's risen a little bit. And, you know, you might have a sex drive that blows in out of nowhere. You never know. It's kind of exciting. So that second half, then you'll see that. And then pretty much after that estrogen drops, it might go back to that non-existent or that sticky tacky texture. And then you get your period. And so some of us spot like a day or two before our period. So you might notice that some of us spot a little bit longer. That's often a sign that progesterone is dropping prematurely. So it's certainly something to look into, especially if you, you know, as you were saying, you're trying to get pregnant uh, because we need that progesterone to stay high in order to achieve pregnancy. So that's essentially what's going on. And it's remarkable because there are actual birth control methods that use only cervical fluid to tell you whether you're fertile or not. And it's just an amazing biomarker for vaginal infections, cervical problems, uh, you know, things going on with your reproductive organs that you might not otherwise catch if you're not paying attention to these signs and symptoms. hundred percent. And I think it's important that the, the earlier that you can start understanding your cervical fluid cadence, I think the better because it changes as we age as well. Right. So when you get into perimenopause, it may not be as obvious, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that sticky egg white, you know, uh, kind of stretchy, uh, that, you know, it tends to get a little 
little bit less obvious. So I think that, at, you know, whatever, you know, however old you are when you're hearing this, I hopefully I have teens and I have 40 year olds and 60 year old, you know, maybe it doesn't apply so much to our 60 year old uh, women, but we want to be thinking about learning about this rhythm because as you were mentioning, it's not, we, we're not taught about it, right? We're just sort of, again, we, it just sort of happens and we're like, what is this stuff? Like, I don't understand. It's just, oh, I, you know, ruining another pair of underwear, that kind of thing, <laughs> rather than it being, as you mentioned, a biomarker. So for us to be able to look at this and be able to make decisions on sexual activity and whether or not we're, you know, if you're trying to get pregnant, you know, what that's going to direct in terms of your behaviors with your partner or, or otherwise. Yes. I could not agree with you more. I agree. It doesn't totally apply to anyone over, you know, past meta- perimenopause right. and in menopause, right. but everyone else, it definitely applies. And I completely agree. It's so interesting noticing the changes in my forties now, uh, compared to just five years ago, it, it definitely shifts. And, and again, that's, that's actually normal. I mean, typically when you're in your twenties and thirties, it's, it's not abnormal to see three, four, five, six days, even sometimes of this really wet consistency, stretchy cervical fluid. Whereas when you're our age, <laughs> you're looking at more like two or three days, <laughs> right, maybe even right. a little bit less. And that's, right. I think, also dependent too on birth control use as well. I, I feel like it's important to say that because if you come off the pill, like we were just talking about, you might not notice this fluid uh, the way we're talking about it. You might actually have to do the internal check method where you put a finger in and you feel around to see if there's any fluid in there. Uh, and you might just not see it in the quantities that we're describing. But that usually changes as you start to have more and more healthy ovulations that are more consistent. Well said, well said. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. All right. Let's talk a little bit about, so in, in your book, in Fix Your Period, you talk about this hormonal hierarchy. And I was saying to you in the pre-chat, I want to make sure that we go through this because I think that in many cases, uh, especially with the first, you know, with the base, when we talk about cortisol and insulin, I don't think that people actually really relate uh, stress uh, to our menstrual cycle. And I think that, um, yeah, let's, let's start there. So how can... Yeah. Um, two unseemingly related things like stress uh, and the menstrual cycle. How does stress affect the menstrual cycle? What is going on there? What is happening for us? And, and maybe we can, um, maybe we can talk about this in, in the context of the pandemic as well, because I think I'm sure that you've, I've heard this for the past 20 months now where it's like, yeah. my period is different. Like, and of course there's, you know, we were all baking, you know, banana bread, you know, a year ago. So like you're seeing a lot of changes because of the differences in terms of like glucose and like carbohydrate intake and stuff. But let's talk about stress. Um, let's start with stress in the menstrual cycle. And then we can layer on a little bit of uh, pandemic, pandemic stress as well. 
Oh my gosh. I mean, the hashtag is pandemic periods. It's a yeah. thing. <laughs> pandemic it's a periods. Thing. Yes. It's totally a thing. I agree. Lots of women have said to me too, they cannot believe the changes in their cycle. And I was like, well, there's that stress. It'll do it. And what I find this really amazing. And I think one of, I want to just say this because I feel as though one of our bigger issues in our society in this modern day, wonderful world that we live in is that we are, we like modern women, I think we just have so many stress inducers in our lives that we completely have normalized them and adapted to most of them. So many women tell me, you know, they're not feeling stressed and I'm, I'm saying this with air quotes, but their bodies are actually telling a different story and your period does not lie. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't lie ladies. So you might not be feeling stressed because of all the measures that you have in place to keep your body going, you know, the caffeine and maybe the sugar and the melatonin that you take at night or the supplements that you're boosting your whole the body wine on in the evening to numb right. all the feelings. Yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh my mm -hmm. God. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. So I feel like these stress related issues and the blood sugar problems are just so ubiquitous in modern life. And it's like you said, right. The wine or the, there's the bagel in the morning or the muffin and the extra large coffee that we have. And this of course is creating massive blood sugar problems. And then of course you treat that energy crash that you have because of the blood sugar problems with more caffeine or more carbohydrates. And, and then we, you know, and we just keep going and going right with the laptops in bed at night and you're, bathed in blue light. And this of course will cause a lot of uh, sleep disruption and uh, you'll wake up feeling kind of like crap. And what do we do? We'll take a medication to sleep or we'll take melatonin or, you know, we'll drink because that definitely makes us feel like it helps us go to sleep. And then we use coffee again the next morning to keep us going. And so these are just band-aid solutions. I really think for a, a much bigger societal problem, which would probably take a whole other conversation, but what we really should be doing is things like leaving the phone in the living room, going to bed earlier, having a wind down routine, you know, asking for help and actually receiving help. And uh, you know, thinking of ways that we can get more quality sleep and more quality meals into our diet, it's into our lives with more protein and fat so that we're not bouncing around on the blood sugar roller coaster all day. And I think that this is you know, really this is where that hormonal hierarchy comes into play. And, and I want to get into stress and what it's actually doing to our bodies. But, you know, it's clear that hormone issues have been brewing for a long time when you start to have period problems, because by the time your menstrual cycle starts raising hell, you better believe that your adrenals and your thyroid you know, and your pancreas as well have been struggling for a while. And, you know, I call your cycle, the canary in the coal mine, because it is, uh, it's, it's definitely telling us things, but we're not even thinking there's a problem until our cycles or fertility are impacted in many cases, because again, of the perpetual normalization of all of these other signs of hormone imbalance. And I think that's a huge problem. And so it's, it's almost like relearning or learning how bodies, your body functions when you start to really think about this stuff and, and have this conversation with yourself. And so when you think about the HPO axis. So that's the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. And, you know, there's a bunch of axes. Uh, we've got the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so all of these are, are basically, I can, I, I think of them as, as houses and buildings on a highway and, and the highway is your bloodstream and the hormones travel like cars on the bloodstream and they go from, you know, one spot to the next. And when you think of, what the HPA axis dysfunction from all of those things I was just talking about does to 
the ovarian axis, the first thing is we have this hypothalamus in our brain. And I refer to your brain kind of as hormonal headquarters, because that's essentially what it is. And, you know, what happens is cortisol. So being released in, in ever higher amounts, because you're in a stressful situation that's just ongoing. It has this, this effect on gonadotropin releasing hormone, uh, which comes from your hypothalamus and talks to your pituitary and tells it to release FSH and LH. So it essentially pushes down the production of GnRH. And this is really just your body protecting you because the end goal is always pregnancy and it might not be yours, but it's your body's. And the thing is with it is that we view this as, or our body's responding badly. It's, it's broken. There's something wrong, but it's really just a protection mechanism in place based on literally hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. Like this is what we, this is what we did to protect ourselves from getting pregnant in a dangerous situation. And so that lower GNRH indirectly means lower FSH and LH. And interestingly, the cortisol also has uh, an effect on FSH and LH directly as well. So at every sort of stage of the ovulatory process, your stress hormones are like, nope, (laughs) you're not, you're not getting through here. They're basically saying like, you know what, girl, maybe not this month, you know, like I I see you, I got you. We're just not going to ovulate. Like, we're just not going to do it. Like you seem like you got a lot on your plate. So we're just going to, we're going to trim back this for you because if you, if you got pregnant this month, this would be bad. This would be bad. Right. I mean, I also think too, it's potentially preventing a situation where there's a, a, a subsequent miscarriage because it's not the right time to get pregnant. And so, you know, again, I'm, I'm saying this, it it just sort of seems that way to me. It seems like I said, this is, this is what your body's trying to do. Like you said, I've got you girl trying to help you out. And so essentially we have that happening and then FSH and LH obviously some of it's going to get to your ovaries. It's they're going to do their job, what they do with your ovaries, like I was describing before. And uh, what's interesting is that this, the release of this cortisol can actually make your ovaries kind of resistant to the effects of these hormones on uh, those follicles. And so I just feel like, okay, at that point, what's happening now is you're basically going to either be delayed in ovulation. I remember reading, taking charge of your fertility years and years ago. And she talked about a client of hers who had lived through a big San Francisco earthquake many years ago. And, uh, and she had said, I didn't ovulate this month and I don't know what's happened. And so, uh, Tori says to her, well, you know, was there any stressful event? What happened? And she said, Oh, well, there was this earthquake that basically destroyed half the city. (laughs) And she was like, uh, yeah, I think that would have done it. So it is amazing to us how we're just, we're not, we're sort of immune to what's happening around us. It's like when you're in a coffee shop and it's really loud at first, and then suddenly it's not loud anymore. And I feel like that's what stressors are like in our lives. So your body is just responding to all of that, whether you know it or not, or whether you feel, like I said, quote unquote, stressed. And this is what I I want to I want to double down on because I think that as you said I think so many women are just completely immune to the stressors in their lives. So, you yeah. know, you have the wine in the, you know, the coffee in the morning and the distractions and the email and the dinging of the phone. And in the evening we placate with wine. We watch serial killer, uh, Netflix thing on, you know, we binge watch like serial <laughs> murder mystery, whatever, not thinking that that affects our physiology in any way. Ugh. And I would, I would love for you, and you did this really beautifully in your book, so I can read out that I just have the, the page here, but what are, what are some 
um, common, uh, like common symptoms or common presentations of stress that a woman might start to begin to awaken to. And you don't have to read, you know, this is page 201 of her book. Um, so when you pick up uh, Fix Your Period, you can just uh, bookmark page 201. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll just share my, like I, I've, I've noticed for me when I am stressed, my neck starts to bother me. So <sighs> I have like on the right side, I just, I always know it's like my levator scapula. I need, an, I always get my adjust, like I'm usually adjusted, but I know that I need extra support that week. Or I'll get, my throat will start tickling. Like I'll start to, you know, all the opportunistic, you know, whether it's a bacteria or virus or some pathogen that we all have in our bodies at all times, your just immune system kind of keeps it in check. But if I've, I've been running myself into the ground, um, those opportunistic pathogens will start to kind of begin to try and take over. And I'll notice like swallowing is a little bit more, uh, painful. Uh, I wouldn't call it painful, but I just, I notice. I'm like, Oh, I got, I have tension in my throat. I bet I need to sleep a little longer. I need to maybe push this deadline out a little bit longer. So those are kind of my two big warning signs. It's like neck pain and throat scratchiness or itchiness. What are some other more general, maybe some signs and symptoms that a woman may be running herself into the ground or that she's stressed. And I don't mean you stress. I don't mean like soreness after exercise, because that is a hormetic stress. I mean, the chronic low grade kind. Yeah, these are so good. And I remember thinking through this whole stress threshold, because that's essentially what I call it for everyone who's listening. It's and what Stephanie's talking about is these symptoms that, you know, you're you're kind of pushing the threshold or you've just crossed it and you know, and you better turn back now or all hell's going to break loose. And, you know, I had said in the book that for me, it's similar to you. I start, I start getting a stiff neck. It's usually on the right side as well. I think you said the right side. I did say the right side. Uh, you did. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> it's so funny how that works. And, you know, and so that starts to happen and then my lower back might give out. And then suddenly I, I need to make an emergency appointment with the chiropractor or somebody to help me get through. But, uh, you know, what I have found is, um, you know, a lot of the time, and this is probably pretty obvious now, but, uh, a client will have a really horrific period. And then when they look back on the month there, they can say, Oh, right. Well, I know why that happened. So it's, you know, really important again, to be tracking and, and paying attention to how you're feeling on a daily basis and really rein that in if you can, uh, because it will result in, as you said, the, the report card is going to be full of D's and F's. So, you know, I think that that's one <laughs> that major worst for any type A personality woman. Yeah. that's listening. If you get a D on your report card, you know, that it's not, kill me not, now. not yeah, Kill me now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know very relatable, but what I, what I have seen over the years and what so many women have said is, you know, things like a headache will become persistent. So they'll get a headache and then suddenly it becomes a three day headache. And then it turns into a full on migraine and it completely takes them out for two days. Uh, you know, I remember 
um, clients talking about, like I said, the back pain is one of them. And then it gets to the point where you can't move or you've thrown quote unquote, thrown your back out. Uh, the other one is, um, like jaw pain. So a lot of people have jaw issues. And so suddenly their jaw will start hurting. And then it gets to the point where it's so bad. They feel like they've got, you know, it's all locked up and, and they've got to go and get some help with that. And I think the other thing too, is things like allergies, or allergy like symptoms get worse, or you know, they get kind of sniffly, or they start to feel some lymph nodes around here, and then suddenly they've got a cold, or they just they feel completely drained and run down and they got to take a day off. So it's these kinds of things that I want everyone to be looking at as their stress threshold and really start to think about when was the last time you had a thing that happened to you or an event, a health event that caused you to. Uh, you know, to be taken out and, and what led up to that, because usually there's stuff that leads up to it. And it's, it's very much about sort of bringing awareness to how our bodies are responding to things, because a lot of us are just kind of living outside of our bodies, aren't we? We're not really tuned in to what, what they need and what they're responding to. And instead we're, we're constantly looking outside of ourselves. I find this, it, definitely this has been for me for so many years where I just look to everyone else who is doing the diet or this thing or taking this supplement and that'll probably work for me rather than really looking at what I needed. So I think it's a good place to start for people. And then when we, when we think about, um, and this leads me, I was, I was saying to you in the pre-chat, I want to make sure, you know, if you were willing to go there, we can talk a little bit about boundaries. Cause yes. I think for so many women, a lot of our stress comes from being overextended. We are just like, you know, credit on a credit card and we just give the credit, we overextend our credit and then we have this crippling debt. And I think that in this case, instead of it being monetary, it's energetic debt. So we give our you know, we say yes when we really should say no. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have conversations that we need to, to clear off, you know, old residue, like old emotional residue. And we end up feeling, I think, resentful and bitter and burned out. And, and yeah. you know, of course, that's going to affect our cortisol levels. It ends up affecting our blood glucose and our insulin response. So what does... Um, what does, what do the role of boundaries play when we are thinking about managing our stress? And then maybe I'll tag on to the end of that question. How do you set boundaries? I think I've talked about boundaries with my Bettys before. It is, I think, and I, I'd be curious to see what your, your th thoughts are on this, but I, I find that it is the most scary thing for women oh, to say yeah. no, or I can't not right now you know, it's, it's, we would rather be inconvenienced than the potential of inconveniencing someone else. Ain't that the truth? I, you know, I, I feel like I, just from what I've seen online and reading certain books and following different people who talk about this, they, they speak about not having boundaries as being a trauma response and it, this idea of betraying yourself. So to be liked or to be accepted or to be loved. And a lot of that is learned in childhood. And if I think back to my childhood, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Maybe not everyone does, but it is really interesting when you, when you start to piece it all together. And my dad died in a plane accident when I was 11. And I remember, um, you know, like my mom really, really struggled for years after that. And, you know, and we just, we had a lot of family issues. And so my sister and I kind of raised ourselves and 
I remember just desperately wanting to be liked by people who I considered to be popular and they had money. They seemed like their families were normal and stable, unlike mine. And I, you know, and I, I felt like I did things to betray who I was to be liked. I pushed past boundaries in relationships with boys as a teenager, you know, in my twenties, because again, I just, I felt like I needed to do these things and overextended myself uh, so that I would be accepted and loved and, you know, all that whole thing, that whole story. And so I think that, you know, it takes no, I don't think that we're getting this kind of education at all, unless we're being raised by people who are super aware of the fact that you have to be able to to have a boundary around certain behaviors that are acceptable and, you know, actions that people take, things like that. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because I only see it now with my friends who have kids who are, you know, they're very aware of all of this and this mental and emotional work that goes into raising kids who are emotionally healthy and stable and, and know when to say no and things like that. Uh, but I don't think in our parents' generation that that existed at all. I don't know anyone who who has an understanding of this from a young age and was able to make these decisions. Uh, so I think that women our age, well, 20s, 30s, 40s, I mean, particularly and, and older for sure, of course, but I see it over and over again in this age group or this age category that women are constantly, uh, you know, giving way too much and burning out and then they have nothing left. And of course your hormones are in the tank because how could they not be? And you're just, I just feel like it's just a trauma response to me. I just keep thinking that because how can you, how can you keep doing that? It's not sustainable at all. And yet I, everyone, I almost everyone I talk to is like, but I'm too busy to do this program or to take care of my health. And I'm like, well, what are you too busy doing exactly? And you should be asking that question. That's the disease, the disease of busyness. That is the disease. And if you, if you're, I remember once being, I was trying to, you know, have a play date with uh, my son and his friend. And she had like 30 minutes two weeks from Sunday in between, it was like in between Mandarin and baseball or something. It was some, I can't remember which the activities were. And I I was thinking like, we have so, are we, am I like under parenting my child? <laughs> like they're not, like they don't they make have you that question kind of, that. Yeah. Don't they? yeah yes. There's a bit of, you know, there's, I mean, parenting Olympics is a different, you know, Oh yeah, that's but, I, but I remember, mm-hmm. but I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like, this and and there was pride in that too. There was a bit of like, oh, we're just so busy. Uh, you know, he has these like Mandarin, and then we have the you know the soccer, whatever it was. And I and I, I agree with you. I think it is uh, a bit of a trauma response. I think parents or you know if you know as it relates to children, you know maybe you're trying to undo some of the things that happened to you as a child. But to your point, and let me just also just say thank you for being so candid and open and honest about your experience because this is you know that transparency. And that openness and honesty is actually what allows for more conversations like this to happen. Because yeah. I think as women, we we feel like if someone knows what happened to us, you know, whether it's family dynamic, you know, any type of trauma, big trauma, little trauma, that everyone's going to find out. We're going to, they're going to, yes. they're going to know the secret. They're going to know that you're a fraud or that you're a, you know, that you're not really who you say you are or, or whatever, but so that's much actually shame in that. So much, so again, much we come back to this, this through line of shame Yeah, and, but that's what sets you free. 
You know, like that's, that's the, that's the shortcut to freedom is by owning your past and evolving past it. Not so that you now are not ruminating on the past, but you are look you're able to look to the future. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, I just had a conversation with, um, with Monica Berg, uh, who's a spiritual leader, you know, CCO of the Kabbalah center. And she was saying, you know, if you think about it, if you are dealing with people who get upset at you for setting a boundary, you, you know, maybe you want to question the, the people that you're hanging out with, like people who would not be encouraging you to live your best life or to self-actualize in whatever way you deem to be the most important, you know, maybe those aren't your people, you know, like yeah. whether it's family, friends, you know, and anything in between. Right. Yeah. It's so true. I like what, what is it that, you know, draws us to those people, I think is, is the question to be asking. And Yeah. yeah, I know. I totally agree with that. And I think that what you're essentially saying is that when you start to institute boundaries around what feels good for you, you're obviously you're growing and that person might not be the person that comes with you. And that has been, I've also had a situation like that happen in the last year and a half where uh, two friends um, are no longer my friends and they've been friends for a really long time with me. So it has been a really huge challenge, but knowing that I couldn't, I couldn't keep going doing what we were doing. And it's very, I mean, this is very difficult. I feel like when you are, when you have family members or people who've been in your life for many years, they're part of the fabric of your life. I mean, cutting them off or reducing the time you spend with them almost feels more difficult than just putting up with the BS. Yeah. It feels like death. It It feels like a death of a part of you, an older part of you. Um, but that's the, but that, that, which holds you back, right. That's the thing that's holding you back from sort of moving forward. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot there, uh, with boundaries. I think that the more we start to set them, you know, this is, uh, how we start to also establish self-trust and self-agency right. and say, okay, this is actually what I need right now. And then we can begin to, you know, and then this is moving into, a, um, we're going to bring it back to hormones, but you know, this is where we, you know, we're moving into like reparenting territory. Like when you yeah. give yourself what you need, maybe what you didn't receive as a child, the love, the attention, the stability, all of those things. Um, this is where we can actually become f- whole. And then your hormones, of course, are going to love you right back because your <laughs> hormones, as we've been saying, it's the report card. It's like how you're doing. Yeah. Um, so we can talk about this in the terms of like, you know, blood glucose and insulin, but also your emotional well-being as well. Like it's all, there's no, there's no difference between the two. Yeah, totally. So let's, let's move into tier two. <laughs> I know. Shoot. That was just tier one. That was just one. Yeah. So Sorry that, guys. And, and I love, I love, love, love this one because I was reading and I was like, hot damn, everyone forgets about the parents. So let's talk about the second tier. Let's talk about DHEA and pregnenolone. Um, and well, let's start with pregnenolone. Let's start with the, you know, let's say, start with the matriarch. What does she do? Who does she give birth to? Oh, I know. Pregnant alone, she gives birth. It's so cute. Yeah. The mother hormone, uh, you know, so like everyone you'll see in the book, and obviously, you know, that the hierarchy is that cortisol and insulin are at the top, but they're the queen bee hormones and they really dictate so much. And like we were talking about, it's 
nice in that you know that a lot of the problems are just from one root cause and it's usually the stressors in our lives and then the blood sugar dysregulation so if you get those mostly under control things will start to improve significantly and with pregnenolone I, you know, I wrote about this because I feel like pregnenolone is this another unsung hero responsible for basically the production of all of these hormones. It's a precursor to everything, essentially. And yet nobody even knows that it exists. And people have said that to me all the time. What's pregnenolone? Is that progesterone? (laughs) So I feel so bad for poor pregnenolone. But yeah, baby, no one knows it exists, but it's incredible because it's a precursor to all of these hormones. And it also does a bunch of other things as well. It's really supportive of our mood and our energy and motivation. Uh, it's also really helpful for, um, you know, other things going on with our brain function as well. Uh, like I said, depression, anxiety, all of these kinds of symptoms that relate to our mental health are uh, are soothed by pregnenolone. It's supportive of sleep. Um, and like I said, PMS symptoms typically are not going to be a problem if you have a decent amount of pregnenolone. I, I just, I think with pregnenolone, what is, is so good is that, uh, you know, when we start to, like I said, get that, get our cortisol and our stress hormones under control, usually pregnenolone starts to sort itself out. And it really, I don't feel like from my experience, it becomes a problem until later on, like when you're in your forties, for the most part, in your twenties and thirties, you're usually all good. Uh, With pregnenolone, what I think is important to remember is that we don't need to supplement with it because I think that a lot of people think, oh, pregnenolone, amazing. It's the hormone that's going to make all my other hormones. Great. I'll just take some of that, but it doesn't really work like that for everyone who's questioning whether they should take something like that or DHEA. It isn't a hormone that you just take and then hope for the best because there are lots of different hormone pathways and depending on your genetics and what's going on in your life, you might make more of one hormone and not another. So it's really important to just keep that in mind and like work from the top down. So not be supplementing with something yes. like pregnant. Well said, well said. You can't, I mean, this is like, what's the top? Can I take like, what's the top? Can I take like brain supplement and then like get <laughs> everything from there? Like, is everything going to be okay if I just take pregnenolone to, you know, will my progesterone go up? Will my cortisol regulate? No, as you said, there's genetic pathways. There's the epigenetics of what, how you are marinating those genes in your everyday life. That's going to direct certain, you know, certain pathways, certain preferences in those pathways as well. And so true. yeah, let, let's talk briefly about uh, DHEA as well. Again, um, not, you know, I like how you call, I like how you call DHEA a bonus parent. Is that what you call it? Yeah. Yes. Bonus parent. Yeah. What does DHEA do? I know I called it the bonus parent because, you know, it comes from pregnenolone, but then it, it does other things. So it's responsible for testosterone and estrogen. Uh, you know, DHEA, I, I call it in the book, the, the fountain of youth hormone, because that's essentially what it is. It's, it's so great in your teens and twenties and early thirties. And then it starts to go down sadly. Uh, and also it has a bit of a seesaw relationship with cortisol because they both come from the adrenal glands and, uh, you know, DHEA sort of, if you have enough DHEA, DHEA, it sort of reigns in the effects of, of cortisol. So it's important to think about DHEA as well. And again, we don't really hear about these hormones. Uh, DHEA, I think that a lot of people tend to supplement it with it during or when they're trying to get pregnant. But I have supplemented with DHEA before. 
I don't recommend it unsupervised. Uh, I found that my hair started falling out like crazy and I got super aggressive and annoyed with everything and everyone in my life for a few months. And I had a great sex drive though. I will say that. But it increases but, DHT. We know that, right? Like there is like, you can see an increase. I mean, maybe that was it. I don't know. I don't know your yes. genes, but like, yes. you know, like that super testosterone, like, like dihydrotestosterone, you know, it's also, it's a precursor to testosterone. But if you have that genetic predisposition where your testosterone very quickly can change into DHT and you're taking that, you know, again, this whole point of like, if you're taking that, like, you know, up the line, this upline hormone, mm -hmm. and you're not actually fixing some of the downstream predispositions that you have, then, you know, as you said, it's going to, you're going to be, you're going to get aggressive. You're going to get chest hair. You're going to be making all these new PRs in the gym, but you're also <laughs> going to be, you know, you're also going to be sort of, you know, creating this possibly detrimental, uh, more of a hormone that, you know, the female body is not necessarily, uh, is not optimized for. Girl, I'm telling you, it was no joke. So stop the DHEA. And again, like we were saying, just it's best to just focus upstream and then work downwards rather than just pumping yourself full of a hormone. And what's amazing to me is that you can buy these hormones over the counter in the US. I, you know, I've had clients in the UK and Australia and places like that, and you cannot do that. You can't even buy melatonin over the counter in those countries. So yeah, I have to be careful. I have to be careful. Mm -hmm. Let's, um, let's move into a couple of, um, kind of more common, uh, you know, period problems, if you will, and some solutions. Um, primarily I want to talk a little bit about dysmenorrhea. Um, so we have primary and secondary, you know, primary is, you know, kind of, you know, not, we'll say it's common, right? It's, yeah. it's, cramping related to the period. We have the prostaglandins, we're getting the shedding of the endometrial lining. But what I want to, what I, what I want to talk a little bit more about is secondary, uh, dysmenorrhea. Okay. Uh, a lot of women, um, uh, especially with, you know, endometriosis and, and, uh, me even adenomyosis are, are, are dealing with this. What are some ways that, um, we might look at someone who has, secondary dysmenorrhea. Uh, so not the normal cramping or the common cramping that we see. Uh, what are some things that we might think about, uh, directionally to help them? And obviously we're, I'm going to preface this by saying like, Nicole is not your doctor, right? <laughs> so she's, she's basing this on, you know, her experience, her experience in the literature as a coach, but you, if you're listening to this, there's, you know, a little caveat to say that you need to be working with someone one-on-one -on -one for this, but what would be some of your, from your experience, um, what are some useful, um, tools that someone who has the secondary dysmenorrhea, um, what, what might they do to help, help their symptoms and help to alleviate the condition? I love this because it, it really opens the, you know, the conversation up to having a more nuanced discussion about what, what this is, because what over the years, my experience with using the pill and those of many others that I've worked with is that they're just put on a pill and, you know, and that's it. And they're sent on their way. And there's really no investigation as to why they have this dysmenorrhea in the first place. And the most common cause of it is endometriosis. And that typically um, how you might know that is your pain is starting from a younger age. And so usually with endometriosis, 
teenagers, I think are just vastly overlooked, unfortunately, but there really should be exploration as a teenager into figuring out why you have the pain that you have. Uh, it typically will start sooner in the cycle. So you start young and then you also get it for more days in your cycle and it might last longer. So like throughout your period. So these are some signs that you, you potentially have endometriosis or, you know, something else is going on, but that that's often what I see. I think that the exploration needs to be of the cause. So with endometriosis, it's a little bit of a challenge, as you know, because uh, the one way to diagnose it or the true way to diagnose it is through uh, a surgical intervention and you have to, they have to see it on, you know, they actually have to open you up and see it. And that of course is a major hindrance for not only anyone who's young, who does not want to go through that, but anyone really in, in other countries where there is no buddy to do that kind of exploratory surgery. So I think that that's the first thing is, is looking at is figuring out what exactly the cause is. So there can be endometriosis, uh, uterine fibroids is another one. You mentioned adenomyosis uh, is another condition that can be a cause of it, of uh, secondary dysmenorrhea. Um, ovarian cysts. I mean, these, you know, it's not necessarily that they're going to cause this pain at your period only, but you'll see it at other times in your cycle too, particularly when you ovulate. Um, and, uh, the other cause that I think is, is often overlooked is the copper IUD also known as the power guard that can cause significant pain. So if you've had pain from your period before you will likely have, uh, you know, Pay even more pain when you have the copper IUD. I think the other thing to keep in mind too is structural issues. So uh, is there some sort of pelvic floor dysfunction that's causing your period pain? And so depending on the problem or the underlying cause, that's how you're going to start to treat the, the actual issue that you're having. And I think with any of these conditions that I just described, Starting with the way we eat is pretty much it's paramount. I think that we can do a whole bunch of other things, but at the end of the day, uh, your diet is obviously going to play a huge role in how inflamed you are. And so I, you know, I start with everyone with that. And I, I know you do too. Or I imagine you do. And, and I really think that this is, you know, the foundational building blocks of, of health. And this, and this is the way that you're going to sort of start to move through the, the pain that you're feeling on a monthly basis or a cyclical basis. So that's the first thing. And then of course, there's lots of other things too. I mean, a lot of people take CBD or they use CBD oil. I feel like that's been tremendously helpful for tons and tons of clients over the years who have, who experience pain as they're also working on the foundational pieces as well. Cause there's, I feel like there's short-term changes and then there are the long-term changes. And for many of us, especially if you're in chronic pain, the short-term changes are all you can do, or at least focus on in that moment. And I think that's totally okay. I think everyone just needs to figure out, you know, what makes the most sense for them. So I would say that something like CBD oil. I feel like a lot of women do castor oil packs, not on their period, but throughout their cycle, which really helps with the breaking up of any kind of scar tissue and helps with inflammation. I feel like castor oil has just been miraculous for a lot of people. It helped me a lot too. I think that, um, what else is I going to say? Vaginal steaming is another one. I know this is controversial. <laughs> when I, when I published my book in the UK, they didn't want to include it because it's so controversial there, oh, wow. but yeah, I know. So I didn't get to include it in the UK version of the book, but it is one of those 
one of those practices that I, you know, I've done myself too. And I've heard remarkable stories from women about, you know, having tremendous period pain every month and it getting down to the point where it's like a three or a four. So it's much more manageable than it had been. And again, you know, there's lots of resources online for vaginal steaming. So I encourage people to look that up. I, I, I'm a big fan of Steamy Chick and her resources. She's got a ton of great stuff on her website. And then there are other things, of course, too, like bringing in more fish oil into your diet. So supplementing with a higher dose of fish oil, removing those omega-6 fatty acids, the industrial seed oils. I think that this is something that's grossly overlooked in our society because a lot of us go out to restaurants and we eat and we don't even really think about the oil that our food is being cooked in. But when, and I, and I feel like this was very apparent last year during the pandemic, when I had a lot of women saying to me, well, I'm not eating out anymore. And my period pain has dropped dramatically. I was like, hmm, yeah, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about these seed oils, we're talking about the peanut oil and the canola oil and the, um, you know, what else? The a whole bunch of different sunflower ones. oil. Sunflower. And exactly. All, all and safflower. Those, yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so these are Nature doesn't make inflammatory oils. It's just that we have processed them to the point where they are. Yeah, (laughs) right. I know we really do. It's a joke. So yeah, so I feel like something like that, making a concerted effort just to take out those inflammatory oils out of your diet can do wonders for the pain that you're experiencing. So like I said, it's very much about getting working with someone who is going to help with a diagnosis, whatever that is, and then taking action from there. Wonderful. And I will say that this book is, let's see about how many pages we got here, 385 pages, chock full of, you have your six week program in here and you go through all different types, all different manners of how we can correct it from seed cycling to nutrition, as you mentioned, exercise, sex, stress reduction techniques. So it's really, I I really do think this is an excellent book. And I think every woman should have this in their repertoire, uh, who's in their reproductive Um, age. And just as we're kind of wrapping up here, uh, I guess my final question to you will be, what are some of your favorite practices? So if there's, you know, let's say top three, top three things that you love to do to, uh, you know, to get in touch with your body and your cycle to optimize your cycle, what, what would those be? You know, they're not so feminine. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of into the biohacking type of thing. And I really, you know, I just love to see numbers and data. I find it fascinating. I'm currently wearing a glucose monitor right now, um, which is, is, has been unbelievable and just in giving me a whole ton of information about what's going on in my body. And everyone should know that your blood sugar is definitely more stable in the first half of your cycle than it is in the second half of your cycle. So that's something to pay attention to if you were ever to test your blood sugar. But that's one thing that I've been using recently that I've found to be really remarkable. And also too, when you have this data, I feel like you're far more likely to make changes to what's going on in your life or right to your to basically everything, to your schedules, the way you're eating, all of it. It's because you have this information. Again, your body is not lying. It's clearly telling you what's going on here. Uh, So I think like that's the first thing. And then cycle tracking, which I know we didn't get so much into, but I feel like that to me has been it, it has changed everything for me. I mean, that was what I started doing on a wall calendar back in my early twenties. Cause that's what we had. And I sound so old. It's ridiculous, but it's true. And I, you know, now I use, I have like three things. I use a basal temperature or a basal thermometer. I use the Daisy. 
Uh, and I also use the Ava fertility bracelet. And again, like this is just me because I'm crazy and I like to see all this, this information. You do not have to use three different devices to track your cycle. Like I said, I just think it's awesome. And I also have like five apps, uh, but having that data is also incredible. I mean, you know exactly where you are in your cycle. I feel like for me, it gives me so much comfort knowing that why I'm acting the way I'm acting or why I feel the way I might feel on a certain day or in a certain week. And as I've gotten older too, it's really just nice to see the patterns and the changes and to just know that, okay, well, that happened last time and the month before. And so maybe I want to look at that in the next month or two and maybe go see my doctor about it or something like that. And so I think that having that information about my cycle has been Again, like I said, it's been game changing for me and I feel as though it is game changing for anyone who starts to take up that practice. I also have been measuring heart rate variability and coming back to just like when you know better, you do better. Uh, And coming back to the whole stress conundrum that we all are in right now, I think that knowing heart rate variability, it's measured on my Ava fertility bracelet. So you can use one of those or an aura ring or um, Garmin has a couple of different devices that measure HRV. And so it's the difference in time between consecutive heartbeats essentially. And uh, it is dictated by your parasympathetic nervous system and then your nervous system or your sympathetic nervous system. And And what happens is when your heart rate variability changes quite dramatically, uh, you know, that's a reflection of your body responding to stress. And when you have, again, like when you have that information, at least when I have that information, I'm like, okay, I have to do better now. And I'm able to, you know, I'm really able to see that and take a step back and, and take care of myself. And so all of this data uh, on blood sugar and my cycle and my cervical fluid and my period and heart rate variability, which is my stress, or at least my body's response to stress has, has really helped me to live a life that feels not like what it was before. (laughs) Cause before I was just sort of in survival mode, pretty much going from one thing to the next to the next. And so I think that if I, you know, if you wanted to try something like this, I, you know, I would, I would certainly start with cycle tracking if that's not something you're doing already and, and just paying attention to what's normal for you and what's not, because that's really what it comes down to, right? It's like, what is our normal? And if there are fluctuations from that normal, then you can start to pay attention and maybe make changes based on that. Wonderful. I agree with all of those. I love all of those as well. I have an aura. I track my HRV um, and I have apps that I track my cycle in. So I'm like you able to respond appropriately to my internal environment so that, you know, and I can control my external environment based on that. Yeah. So let's, where can people find you? So I will put the links in the show notes for the book, Fix Your Period, Six Weeks to Banish Bloating, Conquer Cramps, Manage Moodiness and Ignite Lasting Hormonal Balance. But if people want to interact with you on social, do you have programs? Like tell people where they can find you. For sure. So you can find the book at fixyourperiod.com if you're maybe in another country and you don't know where to buy a book. Uh, And then on my website, nicolejardim.com, you'll find my programs. You'll find my blog. I talk a lot about all of this stuff. And then I mostly spend time on Instagram and I'm on there just talking about all the things, although I've been on a bit of a break, uh, again, mental health and boundaries ladies. Uh, so I'll be on Instagram for the most part for the rest of this year. And I also, I have a podcast as well called the period party. 
I hope that you loved that conversation as much as I did. And I wanted to, in leaving you before leaving you for today, wanted to read you a review that I really, really felt like gut punch felt. Um, this came in from the U S of a, uh, from Therandolin, and I don't know where the tone is there. So I believe I'm combining it, but Therandolin from the U S and she writes, if you're feeling unsure and insecure at times, then this is the podcast for you. At times you may feel turned off or question Dr. Stephanie's authenticity or feel insecure when you see her stunning photos, her abundant, extensive knowledge on so many subjects, or her shameless plugs for her books and programs. But upon further reflection, you'll see that this is because she is actively modeling the behaviors and love of life she truly wants and believes is possible for every woman. Start with Dr. Shafali's Radical Awakening episode, and hopefully you'll be inspired to learn more how to be amazing yourself and amazing to yourself. Man, I just really felt that. Um, thank you so much for being so honest. Um, and you're right. Uh, you get the you get the gold sticker on your chart because that's exactly what I am trying to do. I am trying to live the life um, that I aspire. I am living what it means for me to be my best Betty, my best self. And in doing so, in following my dreams and pursuing my dreams of creating programs that impact women and writing books that I'm really proud of and talking about um, those products that I've created and put a lot of love and energy and creativity into. I hope that in doing so, it also gives you permission to fall in love with a process, follow it through to fruition, and then tell people about it because you should be proud of it. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that review. I love it. I've shared it with my team. Uh, shared it on my social because I loved it so much. And um, I hope that in some way, I, some small way, I hope that I'm able to inspire you to follow the things that are really meaningful for you. And then to scream it from the mountaintops because man, I want women to take up more space. You know, I often joke, you know, sometimes if you've ever, you know, taken the tube or the metro or subway and, you know, you're sitting as a woman, you, if you ever, you know, sit beside a guy and he's like sitting with like the man spread, you know what I'm saying? Like the legs are, you know, separated. He's like taking up space and we're just sort of mauling, like sort of trying to contort ourselves into these little pretzels, like in order not to touch him. And I, I want us to be like, maybe not necessarily sitting on the subway with a man spread, but I want us to be comfortable with taking up more space. I think that women uh, were sort of conditioned to be as small and petite and quiet as possible. And I just want us to be comfortable taking up more space. So maybe there's like a lady spread there. And <laughs> I realize how that sounds and how many jokes can be made and memes that can be made from that. However, uh, we're going to go with lady spread. So thank you so much for uh, leaving that review. And um, yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. I read all the, I read all the reviews They come in from everywhere. When people tell me they don't like the way I sound, when people tell me that there's too much echo when people tell me that they love, I, I read it all. I take it all in and I'm always trying to be better for you as well. So until then I bid you adieu, ladies and germs. I will see you for geeky magic later this week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's geeky magic carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast, 
and I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 